through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yep, Joey Watson here. And yes, on your radio, streaming online and pretty much anywhere you get your podcast now, this is Out of the Box. Every week, I get to roll through the records of one guest and get a bit of an idea of how said records intersect with the stories from their life. Today, I'm sitting down with Imelda Davis. Imelda's grandfather was kidnapped on a beach in Vanuatu and brought to Australia as a 12-year-old boy to work in unspeakably harsh conditions on the sugar plantations of northern Queensland. It's a story that makes her a direct descendant of blackbirding, the forgotten slave trade that mired early Australia. Her own life has been defined by identity, community and, of course, a healthy dose of black power. Now the head of Australia South Sea Islanders Port Jackson, the principal body advocating for the recognition of blackbirding and Australian South Sea Islander culture. And Melda, thanks so much for coming on the show out of the box. Thank you, Joey. Thank you very much. Melda, I think it's a pretty obvious place to start with this one is with some history. Um, We've got a big story here um, to get through and one that might be still revelatory to many Australians and many listeners. Uh, In 1847, Benjamin Boyd first blackbirded uh, a group of men and took them to Eden in central New South Wales. Can we start with a bit about what is blackbirding and and where he had taken these men from? So blackbirding is a practice derived from the African slave trade. You know, it's capturing, capturing, um, you know, African slaves or black people and and, um, you know, putting them into slavery or indenture. So that was a practice that uh, I guess slavery was abolished in 1865 and then it came across to the Pacific in 1863. And, you know, as a part of this indentured labour trade that they renamed it as or it was legislated as, there were some 1.5 million Pacific Island Asians, Indigenous peoples trafficked throughout the Pacific um, and also 60-odd thousand Melanesians brought to Australia. And so it started in New South Wales before your grandfather became involved in Queensland later on. What were they brought to do in New South Wales? So New South Wales, Benjamin Boyd, who is a celebrated entrepreneur, Benjamin Boyd Park, Benjamin Boyd Road on the North Shore, he bought uh, in two rounds 119 uh, collectively Melanesian men that... Um, were taken to Eden to work on his whaling and cotton industries. So they were whalers? Yeah, yeah, alongside Indigenous and Maori um, labourers. So it was illegal. It was an illegal act that he performed, and those people, it was disastrous. It was a human disaster. And um, people escaped. And, in fact, uh, as a part of our 25th anniversary, we're going to commemorate one man, Tanner, who passed away. He drowned. He escaped the um, station, walked back to Sydney, um, jumped into Sydney Harbour to swim to a vessel that would take him back to Vanuatu, but he was denied access. Um, And he drowned in 1847 in Sydney Harbour. Did anyone get further than him in escaping? Uh, They all escaped, apparently, as best I know. There's, you know, very limited research in New South Wales. Um, but they, apparently they were found walking around King's Cross and they weren't clothed. They had just, you know, defied and, and wanted to go back home. So 
Um, but I'm not sure what happened to them after that. But that research is still, you know, something that we have to establish as a part of, you know, the different academia frameworks that we can work within here in Sydney now that we're creating a stronger awareness. So better documented is about a decade later in 1863. The, the practice is taken up in Queensland. Around 70,000 people were brought out to work in the sugar can, cane plantations. Can you tell me about what happened to your grandfather when when he was just a boy? Yeah, so it was the late 1800s that um, my grandfather was um, taken. He was um, taken out of the water uh, swimming with two friends on the beach in Tana. This is our oral history. It's not documented. He was 12 years old. Um, it's documented through oral history story, but print media, but it's not something that's research by academia um, because it was illegal to actually take children under the age of 16. He was 12 years old. And uh, there's a lot of stories um, that exist within our community, oral histories, that talk about people as young as seven and eight years of age that were brought here. So what would have happened to someone like your grandfather? What was his plight then? Well, the story is um, that he was taken to Bundaberg and um, he was a defiant young man, and uh, he worked hard uh, as a part of, you know, the the cane gangs on plantations and things like that. Um, and he eventually worked his way back to New South Wales as he got older. Um, my grandmother was born on a plantation in Maryborough. I'm assuming I'm trying to piece together their connections. So she was born. Her mother was bought from Oba. Island, Umbai, um, and uh, she was far, or her father was Tari Santo, who was supposed to be from a mission in Harvey Bay region. But then my grandfather met her and they had 11 children, but that was within New South Wales. So they must have all, you know, with, with Queensland control and some of the controversy that was happening with the white Australia policy or the realisation of the need for white labour and, you know, the politics that happened in the late 1800s, um, South Sea Islanders migrated uh, away from what we know today as Queensland. What, what, what were they migrating from? So, for example, what was your grandfather doing on the sugar, sugar cane plantation? What, what were the Cutting conditions? Cutting sugar cane, like, you know, clearing the land, rough terrain. For, and, for um, free? Well, it's indentured. Well, well, how do you see? There's no clarity around that because he was 12. So he couldn't be indentured because he was under the age. There's no record of him in the ship logs with the State Library Queensland. This is his story. Do you know anything about the sort of treatment that he would have been subjected to? I believe he was a very... He passed away in 1961 when I was born, but he was a hard man. Um, people that I've spoken to as a part of my own oral history research with the University of Technology have... Um, when I went back to the tweet, they said he was a very grumpy and hard man. So I could only imagine that that may have come from, you know, frustration, you know, oppression, um, you know, missing family. He actually named all of his children, that he gave them all a middle name, like a traditional name, which I think was pretty incredible. Uh, names such as Yoma and Nauru and you know these are names that depict family members within the islands 
which I thought was quite political, really. In what sense? At that day, in the sense that it's about cultural maintenance. Right. It's about knowing where you're from. So when you have your cultural name or that traditional name given to you, that, that points you back to where you're from. Um, and it's believed Middlebush in Tana on Tana Island. But look, it, it, it was hard work, of course. Nobody speaks of it being a joyous time or occasion. And um, what has been spoken as a part of our family is that you had to speak English so he wouldn't even teach his own native tongue to the, to the children. And if they were speaking another language or dialect, they'd be whipped. Um, whipped in the sense that, you know, I, I don't know if it's the full, you know, cattle whip or if it was just being hit. Um, but either way, that was a form of discipline to make sure that you spoke English. And that's how Bijlama was born, the language that's spoken across the Pacific today was actually born in Bundaberg where all the different tribes from the islands came together. There was one meeting place and they sat down and they came up with a dialogue because they had to have English and, of course, the French and the Dutch influence, but they had to try and communicate with each other because they were all dispersed, you know? Um, speaking of dispersal, an important part of this story came in 1901... And I think you hinted at it then, that the, the Pacific Island Labourers Act. Yeah, the White Australia policy was introduced and the unions were behind that, bipartisan support by both sides of government um, to, to deport en masse people of colour or black people. So grandfather walked from Queensland to, to Sydney and worked as a dish hand here in Sydney. Yet, but he was exploited again. But either way, it was about escaping that because this is the life he's known since he was a young boy. So, what is he going back to? You know, I guess the assumption was, what am I going back to? Where are my family? He's recreated a life here now. There's a knowingness. You know. Do we know how many were successfully deported? Uh, there was around about seven thousand, close to ten thousand, deported en masse. From 1906 to 1908, that's massive. From their slave-like from, conditions. Fr yeah, from here on plantations, straight out the door, you know, at the stroke of a pen. And they actually issued deportation orders to all government agencies and policing services, which we've got a copy of. And those deportation orders were signed off by Deacon and used at the discretion of whoever that authority was. So if you had a vagrant or if you had someone person of colour um, that you, I guess, identified as, you know, an islander, that would be issued, they'd be locked up and then transported off. Let's go to some um, music off the top now. All righty. What should we music play? Music makes us happy. <laughs> <laughs> on, yeah, on a pretty sombre note. What can we play in tribute to your, your grandfather and his journey? I think um, this is a beautiful song, Oh My Vanuatu, and it's um, by a string band, uh, Saratoa String Band. So, yeah, Oh My Vanuatu.
That was Saratoa String Band with Oh My Vanuatu. Some string music brought into Out of the Box today by Amelda Davis. Her grandfather was kidnapped from a beach in Vanuatu and brought to work in Queensland in the Australian slave trade known as blackbirding. Amelda, what did your blackbirding heritage mean for the sort of family that you grew up in? Um, there was a real, uh, you know, as is all... Um Indigenous communities, Australian South Sea Islander, Torres Strait communities, Pacific Island communities, you know, we're a proud people. Um, We're a kind people and uh, we're a very inclusive and family-oriented, like, you know, what's mine is yours type of relationship and... and, um, with with the broader community and our families so what what about geographically i mean you mentioned that your grandfather had basically sought refuge Mm. as as kind of internally displaced refugee to avoid deportation so he'd come to sydney Mm. where were you then where was your childhood spent then my childhood was um up on the tweed i was born in brisbane on terrible country but uh Brought up on Bundjalung country, which is northern rivers, New South Wales, Tweed Heads, and that's where that community moved. There was, you know, an evident shift, and it was formed around about the 1860s. And um, South Sea Islander gangs working um, in in cane gangs, um, you know, working on banana farms and fisheries and all of that. So that community was established. Why had that? Why had it been established? Why had the community been established there? Uh, I guess, you know, with migration or any kind of, you know, challenges with, with government policy, um, escaping that is, um, you know, something that we're sort of, uh, I guess, a means of asserting, you know, our human rights. And, and uh, South Sea Islander people are quite resilient and um, adapt to situations really well. 
and I'm not speaking, I'm speaking on behalf of our community, you know, and they uh, re- re-congregated, you know, they reformed um, a community as they did when they were brought here. Uh, it's been said that there's, um, you know, islands of origin like Santo Mob, Tanner Mob, on different plantations because they brought so many over and they would congregate on the one plantation on weekends to you know maintain that cultural connection so with the displacement and then this community moving away from you know deportation white australia policy um they recreated this community on the northern rivers and um it's a very strong community you know with first nations people was it was it a poor community that you were born into oh extremely poor yeah absolutely what did that look like what what did poverty look like in well you know what and and when i when i equate that now I say extremely poor, but we were rich in song. We were rich in um, producing our own produce, you know, living off the land. Um, my nana, you know, her her ability her or her green thumb, you know, we had really lush gardens and things like that, but we were poor. Like if you needed to go buy a car or something, it was a challenge. Um, were you asked to work? Did you have to help out as a I consequence did. of that? Oh, always. Yeah, it was um, it was it was hard work, and I think that's why I'm just slack today. Because, um, yeah, work ethic is everything. Um, and uh, what, what sort a, of stuff would you have to do? Well, it was a sense of pride, taking a sense of pride in your home, and also participating as a part of. You know, I had to feed the chooks, pluck their feathers after they were boiled in the in the copper boiler outside the kitchen. And, um, you know, I'd have to, that my responsibility was feeding the chickens and, you know, cleaning the backyard. And a lot of the time I'd just escape and lay up in the mango trees. We had like half a dozen mango trees on our collective property. So the family worked together and they had these, everyone contributed and had, I don't know if they worked, you know, that's more research again, but if they worked to acquire this property, this this land, but because um, it was a flood zone as well. So maybe it was for whatever reason they acquired it. But, um, you know, it was it was living off the land. So I had to go pea picking with Nana, you know, in, in pea picking season and potato picking and things like that. And we'd travel up to Queensland, you know, up to air and um, do all of that sort of stuff. So it was, you know, you know you had to work, but at the same time, that's the ethic that was instilled. So... Who are we to complain? Today we're very privileged. I mean, my kids are just privileged because they don't have to, they don't know the struggle necessarily, you know? What, tell me about the, the outhouse in your grandmother's oh, place. Oh, the outhouse. What was significant about that? Uh, actually, that's a freaky memory for me because, okay, so our toilets were down the back and you had to, like there was a hole in the ground and a tin can and it was just a little, you know, makeshift wooden thing shed type thing and um you know late at night i'd have to i'd want to go to the toilet and it was always night time and i'd be freaked out because there's bullfrogs and snakes and everything so nana put a little radio in the toilet and then i would just sit and turn the radio on and um yeah i'd, I'd listen to some great music in that toilet and i ended up staying there you know like was there any song in particular that can take you there absolutely. <laughs> more than another. <laughs> absolutely. And it was um, Michael Jackson, ABC. Michael and I are the same age, by the way. But, um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that um, 
I have fond memories of that, but at the same time, I looked up one night and there was a bullfrog and it jumped on my face. So now I've got this phobia about green, like, frogs. It's just... But, yeah, very fond memory. ABC from the Jackson 5 and also from the childhood of Imelda Davis. She is the president of Australia, South Sea Islanders' peak body. Her great-grandfather was blackbirded to Australia as a 12-year-old from Vanuatu. He was forced to work on the sugar plantations of Queensland. Today, she's leading the charge for recognition of a very dark part of our national history. Imelda why did your mum decide to move you and your brother to Sydney when you were a kid? You know, this is um, a part of my thesis work that I'm doing, and it's called Black and Resilient Story Blonde Caius, and her traditional name is Caius. Her father gave it to her, grandfather. And um, when I reflect on, on my upbringing, you know, I grew up with my nana, 
uh, up in Chindra, and and Mum took Tony, my brother, to Sydney. But first of all, she was 19 years old when she decided she wanted out and she wanted to get away from Chindra. So she went and applied to do her nursing degree and she went to Brisbane Hospital. And um, after four or so years, she she worked herself up, um, you know, eventually over a 40-year period to be a triple certificate nurse. Um, but uh, she met my father on the Gold Coast. He was a West Indian jazz musician. That was in the late 50s, which is about 1957 or so when he came to Australia. And then they had us. Um, and he spent some time on the Gold Coast, on the Tweed, where he eventually went home to pass away. They separated. Um, but, yeah, look, she... Um, Mum came to Sydney and um, eventually... And Dad was in Sydney, but he was remarried. And, uh, you know, growing up here, it was... Um, it was interesting because... Where did she set up? Where did she decide to move to? She moved to Bondi. She she actually bought a... Pro- well, actually, we were in another street over from O'Brien Street, but she actually bought a property in Bondi. And I think she was one of the first black women to do that. Yeah, is that was, as a bizarre choice as it sounds? It is. <laughs> what I know of Bondi today? Well, yeah. And, and you know what? The thing is, we're saltwater people. And I think, you know, it's about resonating with where you feel most at ease. Um, so when I think about it today, it's a logical choice because of, you know, who we are, where we're from. Um, but, you know, she worked hard. She worked two or three jobs to maintain and, and get that property. And then um, uh, at the same time, she was working as a part of, you know, just community engagement stuff. So I was going, when I eventually came to Sydney at the age of, uh, I think I was about 12 years old or so, um, my brother and I were going to Black Theatre here in Redfern. So we're the old Gadigal radios. Yeah, Betty Fisher used to run it, and Mum and Carol Johnson, the founder for Nasda Bangara. I was 14 years old, and we were doing disco dancing and, you know, getting involved in different cultural um, performances and things like that. Went on ABC TV countdown. You know, I was taking all my white friends to Black Theatre here in Redfern. Was that a reprieve for you? Was it was it tricky to adjust otherwise? It was hard for me because there was a lot of racism there and I think mum knew that because when I was going to, because she got the house in Bondi and I actually had to go to Bondi Primary School and I eventually went to to Dover Heights Schools but the challenge was that I came from a, a very black interconnected community to Sydney where it was all white and racist, like this racism, like bad racism on the tweed but this was like in your face, overt racism where you know they were calling my brother a nigger on the bus and stuff like that how did you respond to that (laughs) well being the tomboy that i am after you know spending most of my life young life hanging in mango trees and plucking chickens um you know i I was i was aggressive i you know i waited for them kids when they got off the bus and i threw them in the bushes and i said you won't be calling my brother a nigger ever again you know, um, because they were constant. And he, my brother was a gentle soul. He was a very kind, young, beautiful, young black boy and very handsome, you know, and I, it just wasn't fair. And I thought, no, they're not going to do this. So I waited for them on O'Brien Street and there was a big bush just before you got to our house and I just jumped on them and threw them in the bushes, <laughs> surfboards and all. And Melda, how did you end up in Canberra? Oh, God. 
well, you know, living in Sydney, and I only spent, I only lasted, you know, four years here or so, and then uh, I got a bit carried away with um, some of my Dover Heights girlfriends and, um, you know, got, uh, was smoking Yardy and carrying on and running a mic. Like a teenager does. Like a teenager does, but mum, my mother's sort of, was no nonsense because she worked hard, she played hard, she was a single mother of two, and she came from hardship. So hardship in the sense that they wore potato sacks to school as uniforms, that's the kind of stuff. They slept on dirt floors, you know, so um, being brought up at, on the farm in Newangella, but um, in New South Wales. But, you know, so she really cherished a lot of things um, that she had worked hard for and, and she was very disciplined. So, because I'm mucking around, she just, she, no nonsense. So she sent me to live with my auntie Naru in Canberra. <laughs> and how did you go there? Oh, more of the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was brought up with my cousin Hokia, who's my sister. Um, and um, yeah, that was that was challenging because auntie Naru was also strict and she was working at AATSIS then. Um, and uh, she was very disciplined, but her husband, who was Dutch, was in the army. So that was sort of like very regimented sort of lifestyle, um, which was, you know, really boring for me. But, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. You tend to, you know, meet different people. I went to AME, which is the Association for Modern Education, uh, which is a, a very sort of privileged school really I mean mum worked to pay those fees it was for children that uh, alternative education um, so it was a lot of ministers children from the government and things like that so I made some nice friends there but it was very sort of laid back so I didn't get much done because you could do your homework if you wanted to really what was the Aboriginal hostel um, so by the time I was because my auntie is so strict and I was like, as soon as I turn 18, I'm out of here. Um, so I turned 18 and I finished my HSC. I was dragged through my HSC. And, uh, yeah, so I was just out. And um, I said, I'm leaving and uh, I need to move on. So I went to the Aboriginal Girls Hostel and that's where I met some of my best friends. And um, we had a ball. It was fabulous. Well, it was what like, was the Aboriginal Girls Hostel? What was its origins? Why was it? Why did it exist? Well, it lived. It was in Ainsley. It was set up to assist, you know, young people that were coming from the communities because that's where all the mob were from in there. And Mrs. Clark was the house mother, and it was set up to assist young children getting involved in you know either study or working for the aboriginal development commission and i went to the hostel without a job but mrs clark got me a job at the aboriginal development commission in the 1980s so with charlie when charlie perkins was heading it up so i worked in the um in the sort of admin post office area well what did the what did the hostel allow you to d discover about yourself uh it was like i was really stepping into my blackness like you know i felt like i was home what does that mean you know home in in the sense that i felt comfortable i felt strong i felt a high self-esteem you know it was it was um you know it was sort of you know and, and it was very you know sort of civil rights like righteous speak your mind speak your truth type of um, situation for us because it was about identity and how you could um, feel empowered and self-determined more than anything you know so that's what this whole 
you know, journey has been through this whole black power civil rights experience, which I, which is all coming into fruition now for me. Um, now that I'm actually trying to put it on paper, sure, I'm realizing the journey and and what my mother's given to me in being, you know, the strong and black and resilient woman that she was. What can we play for that, Melba? Uh, what can we play for your black awakening? <laughs> my black awakening, most definitely, and it's still. It's still very relevant today is um, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, and the song is Black Man, and I was 14 years old when I heard it, and when you hear it today, it just transcends the movement, you know? His name's 
Stevie Wonder there from 1976, producing the, uh, predicting the future of R&B, maybe, with Black Man, a tribute to the Black Power Awakening of Imelda Davis. She is a descendant of the Australian slave trade. Her grandfather was blackbirded to Australia in the 19th century. She's my guest on Out of the Box today, live on your radio, online, or at your favourite podcast app, including now Spotify, I should say. Imelda... How did you stumble into the black music scene in Sydney in the 80s? You know what? My father is a musician. And I've been thinking about why do I love it so much? And I think also the introduction to black theatre as a child and dance and the power of that and what it does for one's self-esteem. So, you know, I've always... and, And living at the girls' hostel, oh, my God, it was fabulous because we loved to dance, we loved to party, we loved to go out. You know, blackfellas are just entertainment plus in terms of, you know, just... just. I guess, you know, song is a healer, you know, and it, it gets you through some stuff. And um, music can can heal and does change your, your mindset and it's such a powerful medium. So coming to Sydney, uh, for me, up and back, with the girls' hostel and, and, you know, we'd all be best friends like sisters and travel up here every weekend and go to Ibsen and, you know, Persian Room. It was all... What was Ibsen? Ibsen was a, was a real sort of funky black venue where a, a group called Untabu used to play and they were an all-West Indian, um, Fijian, Pacific Islander a group that played deadly reggae and we just loved it. Like a week-on, week-on thing? Yeah, uh, we'd come up every month to see them. So we'd drive up from Canberra to actually see them. And how many people would they get to Uh, this venue in Paddington? um, Paddington was packed. Um, It would have been easily a few hundred people. Uh, But then, you know, when I finally come up to live in Sydney, um, I met my partner, uh, Bubaka, and uh, that's where I met some of the most amazing musicians in Sydney. And um, we, uh, I guess, Maurice came to Australia from Senegal. We met here in Sydney, um, and I didn't think much of, you know, like, what's he doing? What are you doing? What do you want to do? And he said, oh, I'm a musician. I'm a, I'm a master of percussion and all the rest of it. And I'm like, okay. And, and we sort of, we connected and we had children or we had we had his daughter, Bennett, and um, I already had Shola then. And, um, and then we just started building because he had this vision of what he wanted to do with African music in Australia. And I was working at the ABC. Um, I was in editing, um, news and current affairs. And then I went across to SBS, working there on Blood Brothers with Rachel Perkins. And then um, I thought, no, I, I, you know, my daughter wasn't that well. She had eczema and asthma. And I, I thought, well, you know, she needs more care. And, and he needed someone to assist with coordinating this 12-piece vision that he had which came into fruition and um, it was just incredible because he ended up um, bringing out, finding sponsors to bring out 12 Senegalese artists who played djembe, sabah, balafon, talking drum, um, you know, and he was the lead singer and composer and then met, you know, um, my best friend's husband, Craig Walters, who was an incredible and still is today saxophonist 
um, brought together Victor Rounds, an incredible Fijian bass player uh, who's renowned in Australia, um, and just some amazing musicians that saw the vision from this guy from Africa who's just like, let's play. <laughs> Nothing much more than that. How did how did promoters respond in, in the 80s and, and 90s to a 12-piece West African band? Well, it was interesting because... Um, I ended up, like, I was thrown into it. I, I was, um, like, two kids on the side and trying to coordinate this band around Australia. That was just... Australia was fascinated. It was There was nothing like it. Yes, you had amazing bands like Calabash, which is a, a Ghanaian band in particular. Calabash is a pumpkin that's hollowed out and it's dried and it's used as an instrument, like a shaking instrument, but that was the title of the band. And good friends, Yao Gleiman and Lisa... Um, but um, this this was something else. This was massive, and and people were interested. So I developed relationships with people on the phone. They'd never see me because I was home with the kids, and the band would be touring. But I'd do all the negotiating, and I'd be talking up, and they'd be saying, "Oh, you know, um, Bubaka speaks with so many metaphors about the trees coming out of here, and you know, it's just this big black guy, and all the rest of it, and you know, does he really?" And you know, they we'd we'd joke, and I'd be riding along with this conversation and um one of the funniest things and i forget the guy's name and i was i I wouldn't say it anyway i guess he'd be embarrassed but i went to meet this promoter once and and he was walking down the hallway and he was looking at me and i walked up to him and i said oh hi i'm imelda davis kind of thing and he just went the other way he couldn't even you know, I don't know what happened. And then I went into him and I said, oh, I said, I'm Imelda Davis. I said, are you okay? I said, what's, you know? And he said, oh, my God, I didn't know you were black. You know, because he had a few funny things to say, but water off a duck's back, you know what I mean? We got the sale. But, um, and I'm not selling myself short either in that respect in terms of the manner in which he was talking because it wasn't that highly offensive. But, you know, I guess whatever was in his head, he couldn't, you know fathom that I was a black woman it's a hard question to ask a manager but is there a, f- a favorite Bubaka song that absolutely we can play now? yeah no they're all my favorites but one in particular that we were nominated for an aria in 98 um, which the Wiggles won over us one of six bands recommended under the world music category is um, Bubaka and the song is called Njeri <laughs> Money bowling, 
That was Bubaka, the song Jerry, the Senegalese 12-piece, were managed by South Sea Islander community leader and activist Amelda Davis. I've been very lucky to have her with me for Out of the Box today. Imelda, in 1997, you make the decision to move to the Sydney Harborside suburb of Piermont. What did you discover about the place that you'd moved to? Well, what I discovered is that um, we moved there in 1998, Uniting Housing, and um, I've been there for 20-odd years. And um, about a little over five or more years ago, I realised or found out the history that it is the sugar wharf. So CSI used to manage that wharf and the sugar that came in from the plantations across New South Wales and Queensland was refined at that wharf, which was just, you know, profound for me. So so what does that mean in terms of your heritage? Can you explain that a bit more? Well, it just connects, it connects this nation, you know, Sydney being a receiving port, for Pacific Island labour as early as the 1790s, my grandfather's work was processed 
on that sugar wharf if we want to go there and be selfish. Where you had now set up a century later. Yeah, a century later, um, and that's where ACPJ was born, this organisation that I'm chairing. Had, had advocacy for the for the South Sea Island recognition been long on your mind before that? Look, I've always witnessed it. It's it's it, this movement has come out of uh, you know Queensland in nine as far back as nineteen hundred and three when the first uh, Pacific Island organisation was founded in Mackay, and since then, you know, there's been continued advocacy, and especially coming out of the Tweed. That community that was formed out of, you know, moving away from control, um, headed up by Faith Bandler and other greats like that, um, who headed up the 1967 referendum for the yes vote. Um, Faith Bandler was woman Ambram, you know, and I've grown up witnessing that advocacy work, that activism work. My family are a strong activist family. Phyllis Corowa founded the first South Sea Islander organisation with other Tweedheads families, Togos in particular. Um, you know, this is something I've observed for a long time. And um, having the opportunity to work in film and television, to work as a part of, you know, um, First Nations initiatives uh, in community development and um, capacity building, uh, I felt it was time to actually pour some of that energy into raising the profile through my media relationships um, and skill base for Australian South Sea Islanders. And that's the only element that was really missing because the advocacy has always been there. But it's about, for me, it was about utilising the social media platforms, which has really driven our campaign. So when you say raising the profile, yeah. what, what is it that you want people to know about your, your people and your yeah. history? So first of all, we want people to know about the truth of a nation, you know, as is First Nations communities. And, and a lot of the time, um, Australian South Sea Islanders, even though we're recognised as a distinct cultural group through the work of Mrs. Faith Bandler and other great leaders um, from 1992 Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission report and advocacy work. Um, you know, people don't know that story. It's not taught in the schools. We want a national body. We need a national voice. We need the government to respect that. And we need to reconnect the families and rebuild, you know, our marginalised community groups. We are distinctly different from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities culturally, but we are one, you know, in solidarity and in kinship in particular, um, more so. But people tend to lob us all in because we're just all black, which is great. I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, really when it comes to human rights and, and uh, you know, people's birthrights that have been stolen, it's important that we rectify that and give people back a sense of identity and belonging for their pe for their children, for the next generations especially. And how are you going about achieving that now? Well, I think I think you know, sitting here in front of young people such as yourself that are like-minded and want to progress this, coming from you know your own strong cultural background and and you know your belief systems, we can change that for our for our nation. I think. You know, Australian South Sea Island, it's time. Australian South Sea Islanders um, have demonstrated, you know, their ability 
to to I guess weather the storm and come out the other end you know and we've got great people that have established and worked with First Nations peoples um, across this nation and will continue to work in solidarity so um, you know with the political climate what's going on for First Nations Australians um, in terms of uh, a voice to parliament we want to have that voice to parliament as well because without a united front and a voice we don't get any work done and that's been the problem in the past unity you know and um you know we'll get there you know as any as any government you know so with that um what can we play to finish this episode of out of the box imelda well i think something that i've been you know um that's you know one of the fondest memories for me is 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 coming out of Canberra, a real political hub for Black civil rights, and working here in Redfern, and um, just knowing that this is home and this is family for us, you know. Uh, but no fixed address was something or a group that really influenced change in this country. Um, it was you know one of the many catalysts that uh, gave us you know that Black Power rush and that no one's stopping this bus you know and that's that's this is the basis i come from as a young person uh into my into my you know older years so uh we have survived the white man's world is a deadly song as every week of course i'd like to thank my producers brie jones and nicole de for the work that they do melda davis thanks so much thank you for coming us. on the show
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.